We're doing, we'll continue our series of sermon on spiritual formation, and we are up to the third sermon on Matthew chapter 5, only one verse, and that is verse 5. We say that spiritual formation begins by acknowledging our spiritual poverty. We acknowledge that spiritually we are bankrupt. We cannot make it. We need Jesus. And when we are able to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy and poverty, Jesus said, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And last week, Pastor Caroline talked about the progression, then blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Godly sorrows always produce repentance. Not just regrets, which is the most lowest level of, of a wrong, in a sense, regrets. The next step is uh, repentance. And godly sorrow always produces repentance. And today, we're going to carry on the series on blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, sorry, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word blessed, as I mentioned, means makarios. Simply means that God's approval of you. You put a smile on God's face when you are meek when you are poor in spirit, when you mourn. The applause of heaven, heaven's applause when you have that attitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Many people today don't admire meekness as a great virtue. In fact, it's viewed for the most part as a liability and not an asset. It sounds more like surrender rather than success. And if we are honest, looking at this beatitude at face value, most of us would have to say Jesus must not have known about the real world that we live in, the dog-eat-dog world we live in. Because let's face it, there is no way in our culture that the meek will inherit anything, let alone the earth. A truer statement in our culture would probably say is the people who are more, most aggressive, self-exertive, pushy, who will inherit the earth and not the meek. In fact, one person uh, paraphrased the beatitude this way. Blessed are the strong, heavy-handed and outspoken who can hold their own and have their own way for they have the advantage on earth. And the person they hated most on the Sermon of the Mount is this man. You may read of him, Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher. For the last maybe 15 years of his life, he's literally gone mad. He hated the Sermon on the Mount. He wrote passionately against Christian virtues and value. No one has hated the softness of the Sermon on the Mount seemingly more than Frederick Nietzsche. He was the son and grandson of Lutheran pastors, but he rejected Christianity during his student days. His book, The Antichrist, is his most violent anti-Christian polemic and was written in 1888, the year before he went mad. He defines good as all that heightens the feeling of power, the will of power, power itself in man. And what is bad as all that proceeds from weakness. And he sees Christianity as a religion of pity 
instead of a religion of power. So nothing in our unhealthy modernity is more unhealthy than Christian piety, he says. He despises the Christian concept of God. He said God as God of the sea, God as spider, a conception from which everything strong, brave, masterful, proud has been eliminated. And in the entire New Testament, he only admired one man. You know who is that? Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Jesus, by contrast, he disdains as God on the cross and Christianity as mankind's greatest misfortune. So Nietzsche repudiated the whole value system of Jesus. And he said, I condemn Christianity. The Christian church has left nothing untouched by its depravity. It has made of every value a disvalue. Instead, he called for a revaluation of value. So he hated the Sermon on the Mount. And so this, this phrase here, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, is not impressive to him at all. But let me tell you what meekness is not. Meekness is not weakness. It is not wishy-washiness. It is not to be indecisive. It is not to be timid to be unsure of yourself, is not even to be polite or naturally kind or nice. It is not cowardice. It is not spinelessness. It is not a willingness to have peace at any price and cost. It is not lacking in confidence. It is not shyness. It is not the opposite of extrovertedness. It is not simply good manners or proper social convention. And it is certainly not a lack of conviction. Let me tell you what meekness is. If you look at the Word of God and you look at the word meekness in its original language, it simply means to be gentle, to be humble, to be considerate. But in classical Greek, in the language, it was used by three different types of people. The first type of people use that word is by doctors. The doctor used the word meek to describe a soothing medicine that would take away pain. Like when you can't sleep at night, you suffer from insomnia, you take a sleeping pill and then you can sleep very well. Or you have some pain in your body, you take Panadol or some other stronger uh, medication that help relieve the pain, the soothing things. Or you have ulcer in your uh, mouth, and then you apply some steroid, canalog or something like that, and then you take away that pain. So the, the word meek was used by doctor. Secondly, it was used by sailors. The sailor used the word meek of a lovely, cool breeze that brings freshness, that refreshes the sailors. Example, cool change after a hot and humid uh, day. And then there's a cool breeze coming through. And meekness is being used in that sense of feeling the coolness of a very hot day. And thirdly, it was used by farmers. The farmer uses the word meek as an, of a, a cot or a young horse that has been tamed. Every court has to be tamed or it cannot fulfill its function 
on the farm. Somebody has to tame the, the young horse, the court, so that its power can be channeled into constructive work and is able to be used and useful in the farm. So basically, if I were to summarize the three usage of this word by the doctor and the sailor and uh, the farmers, it boils down to this definition of meekness in the Bible. Meekness simply means power or strength under control. Absolute power under perfect control. That is the meaning of meekness in the Bible. Power under control. What do doctors use it for? They use medicine, but they use them, they don't abuse them. There is the abuse of drugs, isn't there? Drug abuse. You don't take 20 Panadols, or you don't take 20 sleeping pills. And we know the lovely cool breeze that a sailor experienced, but we also know too well of hurricane, typhoon that can destroy a whole nation, a whole town, or your possession can go up because of something that is out of control. Meekness or a court can be out of control. Try and get a horse, try to get on a horse's back that's not been tamed. And the damage that it will do. So the meaning of meekness simply means power under control. That you're able to channel that power in the correct direction. Aristotle explained that it is the means between excessive anger and excessive angerlessness. So the man who is meek is able to balance his anger. It is strength, power, under control. Let me give to you four biblical examples of people who are meek, who is able to use their power and their strength under control. So four biblical examples, and then with the remaining time, very quickly, I'll give you five portraits, a portrait of a, a meek person, five points on that, without very much explanation on that. So the first biblical example I want to give to you, I want to show to you, is Abraham. Abraham is a meek man. He has power, but his power was absolutely under control and he was able to channel his power in the correct direction. The example is in Genesis chapter 13. You remember the story? There was a quarrel among Lord, which is his nephew, and Abraham's herdsman. If you were Abraham, what would you have done? After all, he's in Eastern culture. You have authority and power just by having certain positions. Not uh, Australia is rather egalitarian culture, but in the Middle Eastern culture, it's different. And so as an uncle, he has power. He had absolute authority to tell Lot to pack up and get moving. After all, Abraham was God's chosen servant. It was Abraham that God called and with whom God had made his covenant. Lot was simply just a hitchhiker. Abraham had power over Lot, but he kept that power under control. He exercised meekness. See what he says here in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 13. So they're quarreling, the herdsmen were quarreling. And this is what Abraham said. Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine. For we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. 
If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Abraham had power, but his power was under control, and he gave Lot the first choice. You choose. You take your pick. You go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll, I'll go left. Depending on you. He has absolute power that he never used his power to his own advantage, but he gave it to Lord. He submit himself to Lord because Abraham has already surrendered to God. He was not afraid to submit to Lord. He was secured in the Lord. Second example I want to give to you is Joseph. We all know the story of Joseph, particularly the very last chapter of how he treated his brothers. Mistreated by his brothers, he was sold into Egypt as a slave. He was lied about by his master's wife. He was put into prison. But one day, Joseph elevated to become the prime minister of Egypt. He had the power to revenge himself on his master's wife, but there was no record in the book of Genesis that he did that. He did not retaliate at all. He did not say, ah, you, come. You made me in prison. He didn't do that at all. There was no record of him doing that. And then his brothers showed up begging for food, and Joseph could have refused them or even punished them, but he did not. To be sure, he so dealt with them that they confessed their sins and gave evidence of true repentance. But in the end, Joseph refused to hurt them. He had power over them, but he kept his power under control. He was meek. And here in Genesis chapter 50, it says this, isn't it? His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, he said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you, for your children. And he, and he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. Again, tremendous amount of power as a prime minister of Egypt, but he did not use his power for his own advantage. He said, I forgive you. Don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. Because God's sovereignty is there. God allows all this to happen for a greater good. This is true godly and perspective to trials in our lives. The third person I want to present to you that display meekness in their lives is King David. There are two stories, two incidences in the lives of David that display his meekness, that he is a meek man despite of the fact that he has tremendous power. David's greatest victories were not with his hands. It was with his heart. He's, an, he's known as a man who is after God's heart. The first incident that displays his meekness is in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Remember, King Saul was pursuing King David, not King David yet. King Saul was pursuing David because he wanted to get rid of him. He was threatened that David will take over his position. And with one flashing stroke of his sword, David could have killed Saul and taken his throne. The story is told in 1 Samuel chapter 24. 
Saul was pursuing David. And, and they were hiding in the cave. And Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. And then his men told David, come on, this is your chance. Take him down. Take him down. He says this, the man said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give, you, give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and he just cut off a corner of Saul's, Saul's rope. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken. Even by doing that, he, he felt bad to do it to a king. Even by cutting that, by doing such a thing so dishonorable to the king, he felt conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his rope. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men, and he did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. And of course, then David, later on, out of nowhere, he shouted to him. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel 14. And Saul felt bad as well for doing what he is not supposed to be doing. He was pursuing and wanting to get rid of David. David had the opportunity, but David did not take the opportunity and get rid of Saul. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 16, and then now the kingdom is in turmoil. The son Absalom has risen up, and David was driven out from his own place. And look at how he handled his power. Look at his meekness that displayed here. Unbelievable. I wouldn't be able to take this. And I'm sure most of you couldn't swallow the kind of pride or ego in us. Look at what happened here. He, Absalom took over the kingdom and forced his father to flee into the wilderness. And during the difficult time, Saul's men, look at this one in second chapter, second Samuel chapter 16. As the king David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family he came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Jerah. And he cursed as he came out. Look at this. He pelted David and all the king's officers with stones. Though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed Shimei, as he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out! You murderer! You squanderer! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Now, what would you do? You have been king. Then Abishai, son of Zerurai, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king, let me go over and cut off his head. Come on, this is, this is a nobody. Go and just let me do it. What did David say? The king said, what does this have to do with you? What is it going to do with you, you son of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David who can ask 
who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamin? What's the big deal? My own flesh and blood, my son is trying to get it of me. What is this man? How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to do that. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. And then look at this conclusion. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. Can you tolerate that? Can your pride and ego allow you to go through that? I'm not too sure I can handle that. But it requires someone who is meek, that they have tremendous amount of power to be able to do that. And the last character I want to present to you is none other than Jesus. The greatest and the most supreme example of meekness is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the only quality that he mentioned about himself in John, uh, in Matthew chapter 11. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and humble in heart, which means meek and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. The most obvious display of Jesus' meekness is his response to the words and actions of men. That's the most obvious display of his meekness. Is how he handles others' response to his words and actions. When he was mocked, when he was spat upon, he answered nothing. He trusted in his father. When he was confronted by Pilate, he kept silent. When his friends betrayed him and fled, he uttered no reproach. When Peter denied him, Jesus restored him. When Judas came and kissed him in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus called him friend. And Jesus meant it. He was never insincere. And in the upper room, Jesus identified Judas, his enemies, by feeding him. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter drew sword and attacked one of the high priest's servants. And Jesus rebuked Peter. And he told him to put away his weapon away. And then he added these words in Matthew chapter 26. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. You know how many angels are there called 12 legions? One legion is 6,000. Jesus has disposal of 72,000 angels. 
And do you know how many legions of Roman soldiers were in Palestine at that time? Four legions. Jesus has disposed of three times more than the Roman soldiers present in Palestine. It took more power for Jesus to submit than to Peter to draw his sword and fight. Peter's action was natural. What Jesus did was supernatural. And Jesus, when died on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus displayed meekness. He exercised power under control. He could have summoned legions of angels, but instead he humbled himself, became obedient to death, and even death on the cross. And therefore, one Peter says this, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. How beautiful is that sentence when we go through the process of being insulted and all that kind of things. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. God is the ultimate judge. He will judge justly. But let me just counterbalance it about Jesus because I need to mention this thing about Jesus. When it came to matters of faith and the welfare of others, Jesus was a lion. He rebuked the Pharisees, hardness of heart. He called them brute of vipers. He said, woe to you, in Matthew chapter 23. He was angered when his disciples tried to prevent little children from coming to him. Jesus made a whip and he drove the money changers from the temple. He called Peter Satan when he tried to deter him from his heavenly missions. All this came from Jesus, the incarnation of gentleness, meekness, power under control, that you're channeling your power in the right direction, particularly in our anger. Most of us, we don't channel our anger rightly. We bluster at people that don't deserve it. Mainly, they are punching back. You know, we just had a hard day at work, we just come back and download it on children or your spouse, which is not meekness because your power is channeled in the right direction. But I can't imagine people will fight for injustice or those people without anger. It's only through anger that you will fight for justice. And Jesus did that as well. So bringing all this together, we have an amazing picture of meekness. The one who is meek has a gentle spirit because he trusts God. At the same time, the meek person possesses immense strength and self-control which he exhibits in ex extending love rather than retaliation against those who do him evil. He stands up fearlessly in defense of others or of the truth as the occasion arises. He's not just, you know, spinelessness, weakness, just go along. He's not like that at all. The way the dictionary defines meekness. Now, with the remaining time that I have, let me very quickly give you a quick portrait of a meek person. Some already overlap with what I say, but I just want to paint to you uh, by putting all this together. Just a portrait of the meek. Oh. 
I put it at the wrong place. All right. A portrait of the meek. The first one, I think meekness commits its cause into God's hands. As we see in, in uh, David, as we see in uh, Joseph, as we see in Jesus, a person who is meek will always commit its cause into God's hand. You never take things into your own hand. You always have God in the picture. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says, That is why I am suffering as I am. Paul say, Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I believe, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. So a meek person will always commit his cause into God's hand. You don't always think that you, are, you can write things out. You don't always have to retaliate or revenge. You can trust God to sort things out for you. When God is in the picture, you're always in the majority. God is in the picture. Trust Him to sort things out. I see Christians go to court, fighting in the court. I say, what for? It's against the Bible. Don't you, Paul said, don't you have a judge that's greater than the judge who is a secular? Isn't your biblical standard higher than the secular standard? Then why you want to sort after an inferior standard to judge you when you have a higher standard? It's a rebuke. So meekness commits its cause into God's hand. Secondly, meekness remains unprovoked by criticism. We all receive criticism all the time. All the time. Doesn't matter how good you are, you will always receive criticism. Even Mother Teresa received criticism. Can you believe that? No one is exempt from those things, no matter how good you are or how well you carry yourself. But meekness remains unprovoked by criticism. Jesus' example, Hebrews chapter 12, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. The thing of Jesus, why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Look to the cross. Look to Jesus so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Because it's so easy to be weary. It's so easy to lose heart when we come under attack. But here, meekness remains unprovoked in the face of criticism. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He said, there are few... He said, the man who is meek is not even sensitive about himself. He is not always watching himself and his own interests. He is not always on the defensive. And then he says this, To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see there is nothing worth defending. The man who is truly meek never pities himself. He never talks to himself and says, Oh, you are having such a hard time. How unkind these people are not to understand you. He said, a truly meek person, don't go through that process. You don't react unprovoked by criticism. Thirdly, Russell, are you able to help me? I can't seem to move. <laughs> Frozen. The third point is meekness accepts 
personal injury without resentment. As difficult as it is, it's always easy to build up bitterness and resentment and angry towards people who cause us harm. But a meek person will always accept personal injury without resentment. And this is what it says in 2 Corinthians. If you read through 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul was under attack. And Paul wrote this book in defense of himself, in some way uh, appealing to people. And that is what he said, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid, because you criticize me for being timid. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away. He said, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I don't see that as being uh, bitterness and, and resentment in his heart. And Paul came out here, he refused to retaliate, but deliberately appealed to them on the basis of the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who submitted to the terrible wrongs inflicted on him without complaining. Meekness in the face of personal injury runs counter to our natural inclination, which is to retaliate, sometimes with interest, or most of the time. But it's just as much as, just as much a Christian duty to avoid taking offense as it is to avoid giving offense. So meekness, accept personal injury without resentment. And uh, four point, Russell, can you help me? For some reason. Uh, meekness bears patiently with the unfaithfulness of friends. Meekness bears patiently with the unfaithfulness of friends. We all have friends who turn against us who walk away from misunderstanding or sometimes just simply petty uh, quarrel. Um, but because of pride and ego, no one is willing to say sorry first. And as a result, it remains, fence remains up rather than build bridge, we build fence. Uh, here, Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, says, you know what, at my first defense, no one, not a single person came to my support. But everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. May it not be held against them. There's no bitterness. He bears patiently. So what? The Lord is with me and that is sufficient. But interestingly, in verse 17, if you read further down, I don't have it up here. He said, the Lord, but the Lord stood at my side and he gave me strength. Here again, we see meekness rooted in the conviction that God is sovereignly sufficient to meet all the demands made upon his people. The last point I want to give to you is meekness deals gently with the failure of others. Meekness deals gently with the failures of others. You know, life is a boomerang. Sometimes what goes around will come around. Be kind, be gentle to someone's sin. Because someday you may be in that position. 
You may struggle with a different thing, but it will spin around and return you the way you treat people. Meekness deals gently with the failure of others. I hope church would be the best example of the way we deal with people. Although, I must say, as a pastor, most church members don't deal with the pastor's sin very graciously. <laughs> they don't deal with pastor's sin graciously. But they want to be treated graciously. But the minute pastors commit some kind of sin, they are finished. They are finished. Meekness deals gently with the failures of others. Paul says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you condemn him. You judge him. You say you're going to hell. Is that what he says? You who live by the Spirit should restore the person gently. You know the word restore literally means to put back into joint. Dislocated, like you're almost like an orthopedic surgeon, you know? You fix it back into the, the body. Fix it back so that it grew well again. It is a word a surgeon would use about setting a broken or dislocated bone. Something that needs to be done firmly, but gently, correctly, but tenderly. There is no room here for superiority, condescension, or pride. These things are totally out of place when we realize that it, at any moment we too may be caught in sin. Just different. We all sin, just sin differently. It's not, it's not a very popular word, but I, I can assure you it is a popular activity. An acknowledgement of our own frailty is an essential qualification for dealing with another person's failure. Awareness of ourselves is essential, that we are all not too dif much different, that we are all cut from the same piece of cloth. The, it may be different, it may be made into a trousers or a shirt or a dress, but essentially the raw material is the same. We are sinners saved by grace. And that is why the gospel is able to present to all cultures, all race, all times, because the problem is the same. The problem is the same. So be gentle. Meekness, a person who is meek, always deals gently with the failures of others because they recognize their own vulnerability and their own sinfulness. Just different sin, that's all. And Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Inherit the earth simply means, means to say that you triumph over your situation. You triumph over your circumstances because you know God is on control. You reign as king over yourself. You reign as king over your circumstances through the power of the Holy Spirit. When you are meek, you seek nothing for yourself, and when you seek nothing for yourself, God gives you all things. Look at King Saul. Saul's self-seeking cost him his crown, but David's submission gave him the kingdom. 
Meekness means power under control. And when you can control yourself, everything belongs to you. When you can reign in peace over the kingdom within you, then God will give you all you need in the kingdom without. Meekness is the secret of possession, possessing everything. Finally, it's very ironic. Two men face each other on the pavement before the governor's palace. One was Jesus Christ, the meekest man who ever lived. The other was Frederick Nietzsche's most admired man, Pontius Pilate, a man of extraordinary pride. Jesus appeared as the epitome of weakness, a poor Jew caught in the inexorable tides of Roman history, frail, impotent, a man destined to be obliterated from the earth. And Pilate was the personification of Roman power. The tides of history were with him. As part of Rome, he was heir to the earth. The two figures are opposite ends of a tragic paradox. Jesus Christ, the prisoner, was the free man. He was in absolute control. Jesus, the meek, would inherit not only the earth, but the universe. On the other hand, Pilate, the governor, was the prisoner of his own pride. He could not even control his soul. He had no inheritance at all. Blessed are the meek. When we come before God as meek, God approve of that. He said, you will inherit the earth when you are meek, when you have the tremendous amount of power within you, but it's always under control. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you applause. You bring a smile to your face when we are meek. Forgive us, Lord. Many times we have the power within us, but we did not use it properly. We was not under control. Help us, Lord, as we come before you, poor in spirit, acknowledge that we are spiritually powerless, bankrupt, as we mourn over our sins, something begins to change in us. We become subdued, humble. We begin to see things in its correct manner. And we begin to use our power in the right channel, in the right direction. And spiritual formation will become more and more like Christ. Thank you, Lord. Bless each one of us and use us for your glory. Amen.